Good morning. Welcome to those who are joining us in the sanctuary and online this morning. Well, this fall, we've been walking through the Old Testament story of God's relationship with his people. And we started with the creation in Genesis, to God setting his people free from slavery in the Exodus, to God teaching his people who he is through the law in Deuteronomy, until they completed their time in the wilderness school and they finally settled into the promised land in Joshua. And then in Judges and Ruth, we saw how once the people were established, they quickly got distracted from the things of God by the cultures around them. And in 1 Samuel, the people demanded that they have a king, and God allowed them to have one, starting with Saul, who wasn't fully faithful to the Lord. But then after Saul, David became king, and he truly established his people as the people of the Lord. And after David's reign, uh, his son Solomon was charged with the work of building a temple. Now you think that the establishment of the temple, an impressive investment that seemed to show what was central to their people, would have meant a commitment to keep God at the center of their lives. And initially it seemed to start off that way, but over time it seems to have had the opposite effect. You see, for many years before that, a tent, the tabernacle of the Lord, had traveled with the people, being set up with them wherever they went, making it clear to everyone that this God was the God of a people, not of place. And as a people, they had no king. God alone was their king. And where the king of this kingdom reigned was in the hearts of his people, that was the kingdom territory that he claimed. But when these wandering people were finally established in a place, when the temple was built in all its glory, although God didn't change, the people's mindset changed. They'd begun to imagine that their God was now, like the gods of the surrounding cultures, a God of place. And what a God of place would want would be sacrifices to keep him in comfort in his palace, the temple being the place where he reigned. And if God was the God of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, then other places must belong to other gods, Bel, Asherah. So maybe what they worshiped should change depending where they were or what they wanted. And by the end of Solomon's reign, even he had set up hundreds of altars to foreign gods in the hills surrounding them. In their minds, the kingdom that God actually reigned had become quite small, requiring the faithfulness of their temple sacrifices but not of their hearts. And in essence, they'd forgotten who God actually is. Human power battles followed that, and the kingdom split in two, led by kings who seemed to get worse by every generation, with a few bright spots in between, but most ignored the prophets God sent to redirect them until eventually the day came when God allowed both the north and the south kingdoms to be overthrown, and the people dragged into exile as they watched in horror as the temple of God was thrown down and completely destroyed before their eyes. Now, as shocking as that must have seemed at the time, how could God let the place of his rule be destroyed? For us, looking back, the need for this seems rather obvious. Because the temple was not and had never been the place of God's rule. The temple had become an idol. 
making people's worship of God into something transactional rather than relational, a way of buying off God to keep him out of one's life rather than what it had been meant to be, a way of tangibly and personally acknowledging his authority over the territory of one's own heart. Our God is a jealous God, and eventually every idol must fall, and the time for the felling of this idol had come, and the temple was reduced to dust. And it's important that we see this so we don't make the same mistake. Are we ever tempted to worship the things of God instead of God himself? Do we make idols out of things that people have put into place? When something has helped us to connect with and encounter God in the past, it's really easy to end up turning those things into idols. The people ended up making an idol out of the serpent on the pole in Numbers. They made an idol out of the Ark of the Covenant in Samuel. They even made an idol out of Gideon's ephod in the time of the judges. We have that tendency to take things that God has used in the past and make them the objects of our worship. But created things must never receive the praise due only the creator. So what do we make into idols in our lives? It's really important that we ask that question for ourselves because eventually all idols will fall. The Lord alone will remain. And that's what the people learned the hard way in the exile. Surrounded by unfamiliar settings, they began to remember what their ancestors had experienced for generations before them, that the temple was not the Lord's home. The whole earth is his. And when Moses had asked his name, he revealed his identity as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He revealed himself through relationship, his name being I am. He is the God who is, and he will be known by his chosen connection to imperfect and broken people who will call themselves his own. People he knows by name. People who know him by name. He is the God of a people not of place. And it would take an extended time out of place for them to remember that. God spoke into the time of exile through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, 8 through 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things, I declare, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. See, in exile, the people began to remember this is who he is and who he's always been. And they began to remember who they were. And they found him again in prayer, in community, in their shared psalms of confession and lament. They remembered him. And they were ready once again to hear his promises. And he gave them. In Isaiah 42, 5 through 7, this is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. You see, even in what seemed to be their darkest hour, God was drawing his scattered people back to their original mission, to know him and to make him known to all the world, to be a light to the Gentiles. 
And so he reached out to take them by the hand once again. And we see God at work even in this season of exile. God used the powerful ministry of people like Daniel to make his name known among the nations. The name of the Lord came to be respected and revered because of what God was doing in and through Daniel and those who were faithful to God during the exile. God's name became respected and known even among the Persians. And when the king of Persia conquered Babylon, the nation that had taken God's people captive, King Cyrus, the Persian, decided it would be in his best interest to act as a liberator and send the exiles home. And not only that, to rebuild the temple for them. Because why not be kind to the people of a powerful God, right? So God used Cyrus to open the way home for his people. And as the first wave of exiles entered back into the land, the very first thing they did was to build an altar to the Lord on the site of the former temple to honor him. Their first act in returning was to acknowledge they knew that God was to be at the center of their lives and they would not lose sight of that again. So in Ezra 3, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. And wanting to make sure they did everything just right, they studied the scriptures to know how best to show reverence and honor to the Lord in their rebuilding every step of the way. In Ezra 3.10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Now you can imagine this scene, half the crowd weeping for all that had been lost and the other half of the crowd joyful for what was becoming, for the future hope ahead. And for those who were weeping, did they remember why the temple had been allowed to fall in the first place? as the idol that led them to forget the living God called their lives, not just their offerings, his own? And for those joyful for a new beginning, would they take the time to learn from the mistakes of the past, or in their pride, would they be bound to repeat them? Well, you may know this history. Through Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple, the wall, and the city were all rebuilt. But having seen what the disobedience to the Lord's commands had resulted in before, they didn't want that to happen again. So as a result, their mistake this time around came in the very human overreaction of diving completely into the opposite extreme. Last time, as a people, they'd been influenced by the surrounding cultures who felt it didn't really matter who you worship or what you worship, as long as you find a combination that works for you, which really puts you in the center rather than God. And God's people had slowly forgotten what a gift it was to live into the unique covenant relationship that God had promised them. And they started to cheat on him with every idol around somehow missing that for a God of relationship, their faithfulness might actually matter. Turns out it did matter a lot. 
And it was only when God removed his faithful presence, which they'd rejected, that they began to realize what they had lost. So when in their long time out, they finally realized how they'd violated the covenant of this relationship that God had entrusted to them, they were truly repentant. And they vowed, if you give us another chance, we are not going to make that mistake again. Faithfulness matters. Got it. So now, to be sure they wouldn't drift that way again, they swung completely in the other direction, and they became all about the law. They doubled down on the law. They made laws about the laws, and they were sure they were lawful in how they were conducting their lawfulness. So if their mistake before was not being careful enough about their worship honoring God and his ways, this time they made the achieving of righteousness, of getting everything exactly and completely right, the center of their focus. Because that must be what God wants. So from now on, if we see anyone making a mistake, they're getting cut off immediately. No mercy, no grace. We can't afford to let anybody else take us down. Enter the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the holy law enforcement, making sure mistakes won't send their people back into exile again. Not on our watch. Makes sense, doesn't it? Why they'd swing the pendulum that far. Because that's what people do. <laughs> It happens all the time in human history. And it makes sense now, doesn't it? How rabidly angry the Pharisees got at Jesus when he didn't seem to care as much as they did about getting everything right and seemed to care more about putting, people putting our trust and our faith in the one who is himself the source of all righteousness. It makes sense now why they got so angry when he'd quote God's word to remind them, God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God is not pleased by anything goes faithlessness. The exile made that very clear. He is a God of relationship, of covenant. Faithfulness matters to him. But God is also not pleased to have his people live their lives tied up in knots of fear around the quality of our own righteousness rather than put our trust in him. Living out of fear, especially living in fear of our inevitable failure, will never lead to the kind of joyful, trusting relationship he wants us to know with him. Even though they had returned home, the restoration of God's people could not come by rebuilding what they'd built in the past, even by rebuilding perfectly what they'd failed to perfect in the past, because it seems it's human nature to fall back into those two ditches, those two extremes of the pendulum swing, where either God doesn't matter and neither does anything we do, or God does matter and what matters most is what we do. The first one leaves us without relationship with God. And the second one leaves us trusting only in ourselves and living in fear of failure. Neither one leads to the kind of relationship of humble, joyful, reverent trust that God wants us to know with him. The truth is our restoration to God could not come through anything we build. It could only come through receiving in faith the new thing he was building for us, a righteousness that's his gift alone, that's only ours through receiving his mercy. And when you think about that, it only makes sense because he's always been a God of relationships. So how would us putting our faith in our own actions ever connect us to a God of relationship? If this relationship depends on us getting everything right, the focus will always be on us not on him. 
The only way this relationship moves forward with God at the center is for the relationship to be established not on the achievement of our sacrifices, but on his. And so reminiscent of the tent, the tabernacle among his people traveling with them in the wilderness, the way God did this to begin this new thing among us was as the Gospel of John chapter 1 tells us in the literal translation of the Greek, the word became flesh and pitched a tent among us. The Lord sent his presence bodily among us, not into the temple Ezra built, not among the scribes and the Pharisees, but into a stable an obscure backwater town to be welcomed by a faithful and flawed poor couple and some rough and tumble shepherds. And in doing so, he reminded us, this is the territory our king came to reclaim. Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God has come near. A kingdom is the territory where the king reigns. And the kingdom territory this king will claim is the hearts of his people. In the shadow of the first temple, the people denied God's righteousness and his holiness and lost his presence with them. In the shadow of the second temple, the people claimed to have God's righteousness and holiness, and they did not recognize his presence, the presence of the Son of God among them. Both temples were thrown down to the dust in order to create the new thing, the way for the new thing the Lord was doing in us and through us, through his son. See, God sent his son into the world to rebuild the only temple he cares about, the temple made of human hearts, redeemed and made clean, not by our sacrifices, but by his sacrifice alone. Jesus came to be the last sacrifice necessary, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices given not by humankind, but by God himself, to redeem and restore and renew the place where he desires to inhabit. Which Jesus makes clear when he was asked by the woman at the well where the right place of worship would be in the future. Jesus says in John 4, Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Through Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The king has come to claim your life, your heart, as his kingdom territory, the place where he rules now and forever. All the earth is his, and the kingdom of God is present in every place where his people are, all over the earth, in every heart where the king rules. And that's how his kingdom is established on earth and that's how it grows through you and through me and those we invite to meet our king too, one heart at a time. And Ephesians 2 explains how Jesus does this to unite both Jews and Gentiles into one family by his grace alone. Ephesians 2 says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace 
who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The Lord has built something new for us and through us. He has made our hearts his kingdom territory, which means we are his church, and this building is just where the church gathers. The temples of the earth that people build, they'll come and go, but what God has built for us through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, that's forever. No one can destroy what God has built or break his love for us. The only righteousness that will save us is his. And the only way we have it is by receiving it through relationship in faith. So is your heart, your life, the place where this king rules, beloved? No, there's no better place to be than at the center of his redeeming grace. And there's no greater joy than to be claimed as his kingdom territory now and forever. And wherever we're sent into the world, we are called to be ambassadors of that saving grace for all who will invite him in. We are called to that original purpose of the love of God's people to know him and to make him known. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your love, for your grace that sees us, that uh, you pitched your tent among us in order to show us your redeeming love. Lord, we pray that we might be living temples built together by your presence and in your love. Teach us every day that our hearts are territory of your kingdom and help us to reflect the joy of your rule and your reign in our hearts wherever you send us, that this world may know the glory of your presence. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.